Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and this is a show in which I interview people who have had a spiritual awakening, are in the process of having spiritual awakenings, and so on. Cheryl Abram, today's guest, is my 300th guest, so send her a cake or something. <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl is a mother of four from southern Louisiana. She's a graduate of Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C and holds a master's degree in social work and in quality systems management. She currently lives in Northern Virginia and works as a learning and development specialist in a federal agency in DC. After an undeniable experience that reminded her of our inherent value without the need of a quote, savior, Cheryl is now passionate about spreading the good news that belief is not necessary. We are already innocent, eternal, and free. Cheryl has written a book called Firing God, which I've read twice now, first a few months ago when you first sent it to me, and then again just this week. It's a nice short little book, and it kind of tells Cheryl's whole story, but we're going to cover it here in this interview. Let's do the usual thing, Cheryl. Let's, let's kind of go back and talk about your growing up period and all that a little bit, just so people get to know you, and then we'll get into all kinds of other things. So you grew up on a pecan plantation, was it, in southern Louisiana? Yes, it was a plantation. It was called Pecan Grove uh, because we had a lot of pecan trees on the plantation. And when they'd fall off the tree, we'd pick them off the ground. And my grandfather and my uncles, they put them in these huge sacks and we'd sell them at the side of the road. Mm -hmm. Folks use them in everything, especially pecan candy, uh, which is absolutely delicious. So I had an awesome childhood. I really, really did. Just being on the plantation with my mother's side of the family. My father's mother lived in a city called Homa, which was not as rural as Berg was, but I enjoyed both. I enjoyed being with my father's mother and with my mom's parents. Grew up with all my cousins, aunts, uncles around, went to school. Everything was really, really great. Religion was a huge part of my upbringing. My uncles right now are ministers a lot of people in my family, both male and female, are our ministers and everyone goes to church, basically. All of that was great. It, it really was good. When you're young and you feel like you are special, that God really loves you and pays attention to you and favors you and you know, things like that, that, that's lovely. That feels really good. But of course, as I got older, I saw that, that wasn't as true as I believed it was. What made you think God loved you and favored you? Because the Bible said he did. That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> because I was told he did. And when good things happened, it was the reason was because, you know, I was favored and I was a good girl. I was obedient and all those things. And when bad things happened, it was because I wasn't those things. I wasn't good. I wasn't obedient. I want to throw in a philosophical bit even now, which is that I get the impression that a lot of different religions kind of pander to our innate need to feel special. I'm special. My religion is the bestest. My God is the best. Your God is worse. And so there's a lot of ego boosting that goes on in, in terms of trying to make you feel like, you know, you are kind of one of the chosen and everybody else yeah. is going, you know, where. Yes. Yeah. And it's not exclusive to Christianity. No. And that, that's another important part of it too. So it is that I'm chosen and I'm special, but what makes that even more yummy is the fact that my enemies are gonna be punished. Those two together make it so appealing. Yeah, 
like a win-win situation, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and when I found out that that's not going to happen, I was pissed. I mean, I really was. That was hard, very hard to admit. It really, really was. We'll get on a little bit later to how you how you found out that wasn't going to happen. So I, I kind of got mixed messages from reading your book and listening to your interviews. On, on one hand, it sounded like you, you were saying church was boring and you, it kind of made you tired and you fall, fell asleep on, mm-hmm. and you went once a week. On the other hand, I thought I thought I heard you say you went every day. So what was it? Well, when I was little, I mean, church was not exciting. Right. When I was little, the only exciting events were Christmas and Easter when I got new clothes and shoes and, you know, stuff like that. So uh, I would fall asleep a lot and be very happy when it was finally over and they were singing, praying the benediction. When I got into my teen years, I moved to Homa and we went to another church, a very, very fundamental, fundamentalist type church. Uh, I couldn't wear pants or makeup or jewelry, you know, couldn't go to dances, watch certain shows on TV, all, all of that stuff. This is really where the fear of God was instilled in, into me. We would watch, I remember a video, I think it was called Thief in the Night or Left Behind, something like that, something there's like that, that. There's that Left Behind series. Yeah, right? yeah. And it basically said, you know, you're going to get left here and your life is going to be miserable, like even more so than it is now if, if you don't accept God and his unconditional love. It was in that church where we went a lot, but I didn't mind because what I came to see was that I needed a savior. So everything I was doing was going to help me in the long run. And what I also came to see was how important it was for me to really, really believe that I was unworthy and undeserving. And if I was deserving of anything, it was pain and suffering. So this was instilled in you by the preacher? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, but I needed it. I had to be less than if I was going to get salvation. I don't need salvation if nothing's wrong with me. So both of those had to be, had to be in place. Does it also have to do with humility, supposedly, that you consider yourself kind of a lowly bit of pond scum and therefore, you know, therefore you were worthy of salvation. You're not kind of boosting yourself up in any way. Well, yeah. So the lowliest pond scum possible. <laughs> Unworthiness was a virtue. It really, really was. We sang songs, Rick, about I'm so unworthy, Lord. A lot of songs like that we sang every time we went to church. That's you know, funny. It, it reminds me of a joke I have to interject here. There was the, okay. there was a pastor and in the church, and he was like really into this thing of oh I'm so unworthy, and he he would be heard saying, oh Lord I am nothing, I am nothing, I'm nothing, uh-huh. and then the, the the deacon sort of overheard him saying that, and he got into it. You know, I am nothing, I am nothing, and then the janitor heard him saying that, and so the janitor started saying I am nothing, I am nothing, and then the pastor and deacon looked at each other and said, huh, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. I'm going to have to tell that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's like a competition. I mean, who can be the most unworthy? How low you know? can you go? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But all of that was necessary. I see that all of that was needed. You mean in the grand scheme of your yes. life, it was all mm-hmm. part of the puzzle? Yes. It, yeah. it brought me here. 
That's an interesting point. A lot of people say that, that, you know, regardless of what they have been through, and in some cases it's been horrific. I mean, I interviewed a woman not long ago that was raped by her father from the age of nine for at least five years and then became a serious drug addict with very, yeah. you know, hard drugs. And yeah. she even looks back and says, that was all necessary, you know, it brought me to where I am. Right. I remember this incident I had with my son. I have four kids. Um, and my oldest son, he's in the military now, and my baby, still my baby. He wasn't doing what he needed to do as far as his homework and, you know, cleaning his room and, you know, things like that. Teenage boys, right? You know, the typical stuff. So I'd been giving him a chance to do better. And I would say, Jared, you know, when you go in your room, this is what I need you to do. And I need you to, you know, bring me your homework when you're done so I can see that that it's complete. Uh, that wouldn't happen. You know, I would go back a while later and say, well, you know, let me see this or let me see how you've cleaned your room because you said you were in here doing that. So, you know, let me see that. And it just wasn't getting to him, right? That this is what mommy was asking for. So one day I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So he came home from school that day. He went back to his room and he almost hit the ceiling. I mean, he just went ballistic. He was so upset. Mom, why did you do that? I mean, he was just, he, he posted it on Facebook and everything. What did you do? What I did was I took his door down. <laughs> oh, so his door was, so his room was wide open? I got a screwdriver and I unhinged the, you know, the hinges on the door and I took it down. He didn't have a door, right? <laughs> because what I, I said, as a mom, the main thing that I need is I need to know. I need to know what you're doing. Okay, you're in this house, you know, there, there are things that need to be done and mommy needs to know. And I told him everything that has occurred has brought me to this point to taking down your door so that I can know. Mm. And I see this as the same, you know, everything that has happened in my life brought me to the point to where I had to take down the door and look and see what was going on. Mm. That's what mommies do. And for the first few years after this happened, it was just marveling at the fact that this, that this happened and trying to reconcile that with what was going on in my life, which was a whole bunch of shit. I mean, it was horrible. Now that that reconciliation has happened somewhat, I'm now in this other phase where, okay, mommy's taken down the door and I see what's going on. And now I'm asking, what the hell were you doing in here the whole time, right? You know, when the, when the cat's away, the mice will play. So I feel like I really need to start taking down some more doors so that I can see what's going on, especially in the non-dual community, which is a community that was, I mean, I knew nothing about it at all. But now that I've come, that I've come into it, I've got my mommy face on, like, what's going on here? Well, we're jumping around, but that's okay, because we're going to talk about, I mean, the, rea the way I first became aware of you was you started popping up on Facebook and, and mm -hmm. you know, saying some pretty clear and coherent things in, in some, some non-dual group on, on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this looks interesting, because, I mean, as, you, as I've heard you say, you know, there aren't that many black women in non-dual circles, so it was a bit of an anomaly. You, you know, you might not otherwise have caught my attention, but, you know, there was that, and then there was this tremendous clarity. But let's go back a bit more. Let's, let's get to that, but okay. let's go back. So you've been through a lot over the years, and we've been alluding to that. 
you know, you grew up in Louisiana, and, and you, we haven't gotten much farther than that. You went to school here and there, and you joined the military and got married, and you're over yes. in, in Europe or, or okay. Kuwait or someplace. And, you know, life was throwing curveballs at you. So let's, let's go into some of those details a little bit. Yeah, uh, life really was throwing some curveballs at me, and it wasn't, it wasn't what I was taught. I really expected to be treated better than I was being treated. By the universe, by, by, by people. By, by God, yeah. yes. I really expected to be favored. And I really felt some type of way about seeing people who were not Christians, not going to church, not praying like I was, you know, and just being happier than me. That, mm. that didn't make sense to me. But I had to keep going back to, it's your fault, Cheryl. You know, there's something that you're not doing. God really, really wants to help you. But his hands are tied behind his back, you know, because of something that you're not doing. So over the years, it was me trying to be better so that I can get better. I can get more uh, and be happier because the ultimate search was just to be happy. I was miserable. You know, the relationships that I'd been in, some of the jobs that I'd had, it, it just I was miserable. Nothing was was working. So it came to a head, I, I guess you can say, once I finally, in my second marriage, and uh, when I was living here in Maryland, I'd been searching for a church again, again, and I'd finally found one. It was a very, very small church that was being held in a school. Uh, there are many you know, black churches that do that, that they start off in a school or a storefront or something like that uh, until they grow bigger. When you and, say you're searching for a church, it must not be that hard to find a church. They're all over the place. But you, you must have had certain criteria that you were looking for. Yeah. I mean, it depends. The message. For some reason, a lot of ministers right now are really into the prosperity thing. Oh, yeah. You know, praying for money or, you know, whatever. And I, like. Yeah. Yeah. I, didn't re I don't really like that. I like more the traditional stuff. Yeah. The spiritual know. nature of it. Yeah. Yeah, so I was looking for something like that. And this guy, I, I really liked him. He was very personable. He was a young man. Um, he had a very small congregation, but he really seemed down to earth. And he was talking about things that were going on today, you know, in, in today's world. He would take the Bible and, you know, try to apply it to the current times. So I liked that. Uh, he gave me a book to read. I love discussing things and asking and answering questions. So Bible study is something that I've always enjoyed because I love learning. So he was having a Bible study. He gave me a book to read pertaining to that study. I don't remember what the book was, but I was very excited about it. Um, and when I got a chance to read it, um, I was going to do that. But it was about a week or so, you know, before I was able to get to the book because I'd come home one day and I went to my kitchen and I saw all kinds of correspondence in the kitchen, bad stuff like bills and a foreclosure notice. There was a summons to go to court, all of this stuff. And I was like, oh my God, you know, what am I gonna do? And at the same time, my marriage is falling apart and I was tired, like I was just so tired. So I said, let me go in my bedroom and read this book. I gotta read something, some story of somebody who's been where I am right now and you know, came through it okay. So I sat on my bed and I started reading the book. And what I read in the book was I had to take all the Stephen King novels out of my house because of the demons, you know, associated with stuff like that. Even the Shawshank Redemption? 
Even the, uh, the Shawshank Redemption. That has demons in it. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah. He, he wrote that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all all of them had to go. You know, the spirit of Stephen King was in my house. You yeah. know, with those books or something. <laughs> I'd heard that before. That was nothing new. You know, about taking dolls and you never go to a garage sale because spirits are on some of the things or whatever. You know, I'd heard that before. This was nothing new to me. But at this particular time, being as low as I was and as helpless and hopeless. Fear was not doing it for me, you know, and this scared me. It really scared me. And I was so upset at the anger. It was, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was white hot anger, right? So I said, I'm done. I am so finished with this because every time I'm talking to God at this point, every time I come to you, it's Cheryl, you're not good enough. You got to do this. You got to do that. I really want to help you, but I can't because you, you know, you didn't pray enough. You're really not tithing like you should. And of course, all of this is coming through the man of God. I'm not hearing this directly from God, you know, so something is always wrong with me. And I'm like, I'm finished. I'm not going to do this anymore. And at that moment, I decided, you know what? Let me just be honest. I don't love you. I don't even know you. And, you know, you can fuck off. Now, I was very afraid of saying that, but <laughs> I really felt like I had to be honest at that moment because no, nothing else was happening. Nothing else was working. So honesty was my last resort. It was my last resort. And with that, it literally felt like chains were just lifted, mm. like I'd been, cha been chained and they were gone. Just with admitting that, that I didn't love God. I never did. You know, and, and I didn't know him either. So almost immediately after that, there was a very, very strong compulsion for me to read the story of Adam and Eve. I don't know where that came from. I, it was just a feeling, uh, you know, something that was felt. You know, I didn't hear voices or nothing like that. I just felt like I needed to read that story, which I refused to do because I just, you know, told God to fuck off and I wasn't having anything to do with the Bible or anything else. I was done with that. Uh, but the compulsion kept coming, you know, and it was after a couple of days that I decided, okay, let me read the damn story and just get rid of this. So I read the story, nothing happened, but the next day, all kinds of questions just started coming up. Why are there two stories? Why was that tree there? Questions I'd never asked before, because I just accepted the story. This is the way we came, you know, to be. And this is why I have to suffer right now because Eve ate that apple when she shouldn't have. And, you know, Adam didn't stop her. And that was just what it was. There was no reason. Why would I question that? I'd been told this by all kinds of authority figures. There was no reason for me to question it. I heard this really funny comedian the other day. Um, in fact, our, our friend Phil Escott turned me on to this. Um, but... Um, the guy was going on about how, you know, here's this story and there's a talking snake and, and they get, they doom all of humanity to perdition because she ate a, a particular piece of fruit and, mm -hmm. and, you know, she came out of Adam's rib and all this stuff. Yeah. And, and then he kind of concludes by saying, and this is the book that we put our hand on, promising to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's exactly it. But like I said, I had no reason to question it. Why would the minister lie? Like, why would my family lie? So it had to be true. And so you wrote a book called Firing God. Now let's examine this whole thing now of truth and belief and, and experience and everything else. 
here's my take on things, and that, that is that religions all start out pretty good. They, they start out with some sage, you know, some seer who has a profound, deep experience of what we might call truth or reality or, you know, the, the deeper dimensions of life. And, um, you know, it, and very often that, that realization is so profound and so deep that, you know, that person really makes an impact and stands out. Yeah. And then, you know, over time, the message is lost. It's usually lost even in his lifetime, you know, that mm -hmm. he's saying stuff, people don't know what he's saying. And then certainly after he dies and generations go on, the thing is, is yeah. lost more and more and more and more to the point where you have, you know, hundreds of millions of people killing and torturing each other in the name of what was once, what started out as the most sublime experience a person can have. So there's this huge loss of the original essence of what gets a religion going. Religions become like these empty shells which bear no resemblance to the original right. thing. So that, that's kind of my orientation to the thing. And since there's no experiential basis left, no experiential essence left, or at least not in any general sense, maybe there are some exceptional individuals here and there, the whole thing hinges on belief. You know, what does belief do for you? I mean, you and I could stand on the sidewalk in front of a restaurant starving to death, arguing about what the food was like inside without actually experiencing it. And so that, and I believe it's good, you believe it's bad. Who cares? You know, we're starving. Uh, we should go in and eat. But, you know, religions for the most part have lost the ability to provide that access to that restaurant, so to speak. And so people are left hanging on believing stuff without the kind of experiential anchor or verification for all these beliefs. The beliefs can get more and more and more out there more and more weird because there's no kind of check and balance in terms of there's no kind of even understanding that the beliefs should at best be kind of like hypotheses okay we believe such and such is true let's find out if it is and there's never that second part let's find out if it is it's it's more like you have to believe this or else yeah so take it from there so the way i see it is that in my experience belief was so important and part of the reason was because of where I come from and who I am as an African-American woman. I remember when I went to Salve Regina, uh, I was in a class, I forget which class it was, but I was one of two black people in the class. And that's a college in Rhode Island, right? Mm -hmm. okay. A college in Rhode Island, yes. Yeah. And the instructor asked the class, he said, I want you all to go around the room, like we're going to go around the room, and I need you to tell me where you came from. How did you get here? You know, a little bit about your heritage. So they went around the room, you know, some folks, their great grandparents were from Ireland or England, a couple of folks from South America. They knew where they were, where they came from, where they originated. So they got to me and I had no answer. Louisiana? I, I don't know. And Rick, I was so embarrassed. And I was so hurt because I don't know. Well, are you saying that I, you just no. didn't know your genealogy? You, you, you didn't know yeah, that's very far back? Yeah, I, I don't know. And, and I feel bad about that. You know, the because the records were lost of all that. And they I, yeah, you just don't know who, what country just, your original descendants nothing, came from or anything. Nothing at all, right. nothing at all. And for those who do know, I, I think they have such a gift. They really, really do have such a gift to know that. And I think the purpose of that, he, he was talking about that I and, you know, Native American people are, were like some of the, if anyone was American, then, then it was us, right? But, you know, th that's a whole nother subject. But belief 
gave me that. Belief uh -huh. gave me my genealogy. This is where I come from. You know, Adam and Eve are my origin and God is my father and all of this. It filled in the blank. There was a huge blank there and belief filled in that blank. That is my root. Those are my roots. So I'm, I'm good now. Now I can move from there. When I finally saw that that is not true, it was like a death, like I died. To let that go, to let go of where I thought I came from, left a huge open space again. But I saw it for what it is. But it was painful, it was very hard. With your current orientation to things, I mean, the way I look at it, my, my ancestry was English, Irish, and Scottish, but I don't particularly care. I never pay much attention to it. And I, I tend to think of myself more as an evolving soul who might have had lives in India or China or who knows, I don't know. But, mm -hmm. but that's kind of like really my lineage. And then if, if we want to kind of transcend the individuality, then we are all the same person and there's that sort of eternal self and, that, and that's who I am. So that there's kind of, if I want to make sense of things, those two things make more, are more meaningful to me than my actual genetic heritage. Do you kind of feel that way now that you have this newer orientation to things? No. Okay. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I still what I would still like to know, you know, e eventually, but this new orientation, as you say, is it's okay. I mean, it's not so critical. It's not so imperative. It's not life or death if I don't know, but it would be nice to know, you know, and I'm no longer holding on to something that's not real to take the place of what is real. If as a Christian, you, you derived solace from the sense that, you know, Adam and Eve were your ultimate ancestors and it gave you a sense of belonging and now you no longer believe that. Do you feel a little bit rudderless now or do you feel like something more meaningful has actually replaced that concept you used to take solace in? I did at first. It, it took a long time to let go. I'll, I'll get to the point to where everything happened okay. and then, okay. you know, then, then go from there. Okay. So as I was saying before, you know, in my room, I read Adam and Eve and all the questions started to come up. So with these questions, I went to people in my family who, you know, they're well versed in, in the Bible. So there were questions about the Bible. So I'm going and I'm asking things like, why are there two stories? What's up with that tree? Why would he do that? And I wasn't, the answers I, I was getting were, were the same old thing I always got. And I wasn't satisfied with that. So that's when I went to Google. And I was looking for commentary on the Adam and Eve story. And I started to read things that I'd never read before. Like the possibility that that story is just a metaphor. Like it's not even real. It just represents, I never heard that before. Google never. must have demons in it. <laughs> yes, it must, <laughs> you know, and I would look over my shoulder like, you know, maybe this is the devil trying to, you know, <laughs> convince me of something. Yeah. I started to read those things. I started to listen to folks like Christopher Hitchens mm -hmm. and I felt so guilty listening to him because I'm like, man, I really shouldn't be, <laughs> shouldn't be listening to this guy, you know, the stuff he's saying, but I just needed to hear other things, you know, because I'd been in this box of Southern Baptist speak for so long that I need to hear somebody else's uh, story. So that went on and one day at work, so this was, I don't know, like a month or so after that, I was at work one day 
and it was early in the morning. It was it was in May. It was still kind of cool up here. So I had my heater on, but I have my heater on all the time because that building is freezing. So I had my heater on. I had a cup of coffee next to me and I'm checking my emails. That's the first thing I do every morning when I get into work. I check my emails and answer them and things like that. Well, all of a sudden I'm terrified out of my mind. My heart is beating so fast. My palms are sweaty. I'm breaking out into a cold sweat and I do not know why. I'm looking at myself wondering what the hell is going on here. And then I'm thinking, am I having a heart attack or something? Which was crazy because, you know, I'm very healthy and I've never had any heart problems or anything like that before. So finally, as this goes on and I'm just getting more and more terrified, I thought, oh my God, I'm dying. Like I am seriously dying right now. This makes no sense at all. And the terror just kept increasing and increasing. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, what, what's going to happen to my kids? Because I know now there's no question in my mind that I'm about to die. I, I see it coming. What about my kids? You know, who's going to care for my babies? I, I'm not going to be able to tell them bye, but it, I, there was nothing I could do. So I just had to say, okay, I'm just going to die right here in my chair at work. And I just let it go. I was like, all right, let's do this. So once I just said, okay, <laughs> that, that's the way it's going to be. That's just has, how it has to be. The terror was replaced by something that I have absolutely no words for at all. None. It was so beautiful and freeing. And the thing that made it so amazing was the fact that whatever I was knowing right then, I was knowing it for everybody, every single person, even my ex who I was going through the divorce with and I hated with every fiber of my being. I knew it for him too. And that just made me so happy isn't even the word. I'm, I'm telling you, it's not. So that, it, that feeling lasted for a while. And while it was going on, like strange things were happening. I'm looking at my computer like, what the hell is a computer doing here? This, this makes no sense, right? What was happening made all the sense in the world, but the stuff around me was just weird. Like, what is this? So it lasted for uh, less than a minute, I, you know, I would say, and then, you know, wore off a little bit. And man, at the end of the day, like, I don't remember what I did that day. And all I remember is sitting at my computer, that happening, and I remember walking home at the end of the day, going to the train station. But I was like, I, I gotta know what this is. Like, I, I know I, I can't have been the only person who've experienced, who's experienced this. So as soon as I got home, I was on my computer, typing up stuff like already in eternity, already in heaven, you know, those sort of things. And this is when folks like Osho started popping up in, in my search. Rupert Spira popped up and, you know, some other people that I'd never heard of. Osho was saying stuff that was totally weird. I just didn't get it at all. You know, I had nothing to hinge it onto. It just didn't make any sense. You know, Rupert Spira was just speaking another language. I'm like, who is this guy? You know, he reminds me of that guy with the Afro who paints and he's so nice. Like he paints these awesome pictures and the clouds are happy and stuff like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Yeah. Somebody who's watching this will know what I'm talking about, but he's very like, you know, relaxed. And stuff oh, he's like very that. mellow. He's yeah. Yeah. Very, soothing very, yeah. Yeah. Voice, yeah. Tony Parsons was another person and I just wanted to punch him in the face because he wasn't giving me anything. I'm like, this guy is, you know, I'm just, <laughs> 
So all, all these folks are, and I'm listening, I'm listening, but I'm not getting it. Like, I don't, it was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know what you're talking, you're talking about what happened, but I don't know what you're talking about. It was really weird. <laughs> you know, it really was. And then I found the Course in Miracles and I started reading that, which, oh my God, the second I picked up that book and started reading it, I'm like, this is clearly demonic, clearly. <laughs> There is no way <laughs> that I, Cheryl, the son of God, come on. And I wanted to put that stuff down. I, want, I didn't want to do all that. First of all, because I had a lot of shit going on in my life. You know, I didn't have time for universe stuff, finding out who I was. I mean, you know, I'll later, I can do that later. Right now I have bills, I got court dates, I got, you know, my kids need me, all that stuff. But I couldn't stay away. I couldn't just put it on the side and go back. Something just kept kept drawing me, drawing me back there. As much as what was going on was telling me what you experienced was not so. You are not good. You know, you are not already here or, you know, whatever. The chatter that was going on over here was kind of it, there was a battle there almost, you know, trying to get me to forget this. Like the old this wasn't going angel nowhere. and devil on your shoulder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it was, right? But this wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't. Not at all. And um, it took a while for me to grow into that. I had to keep, keep going back to it because, man, the chatter is so convincing. You know, it, it really, really is. A lot of interesting stuff in what you just said. Um, first of all, it might interest you to know, and you probably already do know, that a lot of people go through this fear thing on the verge of an awakening. Have you, have you come across other accounts of, of that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the right stuff or saw the movie, but when, when Chuck Yeager first was the first man to break the sound barrier, as he was sort of approaching the speed of sound, there was all this turbulence and he was holding on to the stick of the plane and all. And when he finally broke through, it just became totally smooth. Mm -hmm. So there's like this yeah. transition point that, that he had to go through and after which it became smooth. And there's a verse from the Upanishads which says, uh, certainly all fear is born of duality. And it's, it's almost like there's this kind of fear membrane we have to pierce as mm -hmm. we transition from duality back into unity. Uh, mm -hmm. And then if we go the other way, unity back into duality, then, then there's sort of the opportunity. We're, we're in sort of a fear-based orientation because there's, it's dual. There's us and there's yeah. them and there's this and there's that and there's vulnerability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so you kind of pierce that membrane and, and, and the transition to a, un, a unity kind of experience, seems to mm -hmm. me. Yeah. yeah, it seems so. It was funny because as I was looking for others who've had this experience, I really wanted to hear from someone who looked like me. You know, that was very important to me. I didn't want to listen to Rupert Spira. I didn't. I'm like an English white dude. What does he know about anything that I've experienced? You How know? about Muji? Muji comes close. Yeah, he comes close, but he dresses weird, and he's got you know the, he has the thing on his lap. I mean, he you know he was too guru-y for me, you know. Yeah. So I, I wanted to find a normal person, you know, that, that I could really talk to and who I could relate to. I, I didn't find that, but I needed to know so badly that I pushed that aside. I said, okay, fine, whatever. Let me just listen to what these folks are saying. And of course, eventually, none of that matters, you know, in the end. But, but, but that experience has resonated with me throughout because 
the experience I, you had in the office, you mean? Yes, and, and the search for somebody search, right. who looked like me. So mm -hmm. what I did was, in my research, I, I looked up this guy and Jerry Katz. I, I read that it seemed like he'd been in the non-duality game like forever, mm -hmm. right? So I emailed him and I said, you know, Jerry, my name is Cheryl. This is who I am. This is what's happened to me. And in the email, I said, so where are all the black people? Because I really thought he'd been in the game so long that he would know where we were housed or something. <laughs> Tell me, you know, oh, well, they, you know, the non, the black non-dualists have a thing in Detroit every year or whatever. <laughs> you know, I was really, because he'd know. If anyone would know, he'd know. And um, he was like, I don't know. So <laughs> we you did the interview and, and things like that. Now that, as I said, I've started to, over the years, grow into this. Now, this stuff never stopped. The chatter and all the problems and all that stuff. And I talk about that in my book. Like, I was still going through crap. You know, I was still feeling shitty after my court date. And I, you know, still hated my husband and all that stuff. All of that was going on still while I was growing into this, this other, you know, whatever that is. And now that I feel like I'm, I don't know, more stable, I guess. I don't even know the word for it. I'm starting to focus more on this, on, on the chatter and, and what's going on over here. And again, Jerry, he's started this group called Diunital Consciousness. It's about how you mentioned before, you know, either or. It's about either or not being the only option. Right. Okay. Both there both is another hand. one. Yes. Both yeah. hand is, is also there. And this is leading me in my talks and with my book. And, you know, last weekend I went to Atlanta to talk to the black non-believers mm. to really introduce this to my community, to the community. Because, Rick, when I had that experience in my office, it was so, to grow up feeling like, you don't belong, you don't know who you are, and you deserve every horrible thing that happens to you is an awful way to grow up. And to see that the people around you, they feel the exact same way is really hard. I mean, I know, I'm sorry. That's okay, this is sweet. I know some beautiful, beautiful people and they're so afraid because the belief that they're holding on to, they feel like that's all they have. There's no other option. I just want to do what I can to let them know that there is. I'm sorry. That's good. No, you can cry. Just don't slap your microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's very, very sweet, Cheryl. And I'm sure you will. I mean, I'm sure you're going to do a lot and you are doing a lot and this interview will help you do more. To my mind, the experience you had in your office, beautiful experience. And there are people who kind of live in that state all the time. And I'm sure you have to a much greater degree now than, than you used to. And so we're talking about something really wonderful and sublime. And, you know, what's fear got to do with it, to paraphrase Tina Turner? It's, it's such a shame that there's been so much nonsense in the name of spirituality and that, that, that generations of people have been condemned to, to fear over something which should be the act, the polar opposite of fear. And you know, it's funny, I, I had you listen to my interview with Michael Dowd. He mentions that statistically, in the sort of the Bible Belt areas of the country, 
there's a much higher incidence of porn and spousal abuse and you know alcoholism and all kinds of creepy stuff than there is in the in the sort of non-religious parts of the country like the east and west coast so you kind of wonder personally i think there's a kind of a a nugget of truth and goodness in, in religion ultimately, but what's it doing for people if that's the society that, that, it, ten, that it tends to build, you know, and if it, if it just creates hordes of, of people who are out of touch with reality and are, are dominated by fear. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad you say, you know, what, what's it doing for people because one of the things, after I was able to process all of this, and I talk a little bit about it at the end of my book is so what? Yeah. Okay. We're all one. We're already in eternity. So what? I, I'm still hurting. I'm still suffering. I'm still, you know, all this stuff is still going on. Now, what do we do with that? Like, cause now I feel like from where I am now, now I can begin to evolve because with belief, I felt stuck. You know, I, I, I could only go so far. This is, I can't go any further than this, right? But now I see that change is possible now because of what I see, because I see that I cannot change. Now that I see that I cannot change, I can do it, finally. Elaborate on that, so clarify that. What I see is I was using belief. Belief was taking the place of permanence. It was taking the place of stability and safety because I could not see who I really was. Mm. I, I couldn't see that. So I was making this thing up because I thought I was missing that. But now that I see that I'm not missing that, I don't need this anymore. I don't need this, this faux stability, this faux peace, this, you know, this fake permanence. Yeah. Now I can change. I can get rid of that stuff. And go ahead and change the way the way I need to change, the way I want to change, you know, because I see that I can't. And they have to work together. Not changing and changing have to rise together and happen at the same time, which is what diunitality is about. Now we get into the real stuff. I really want to see because I don't see, and this is just my opinion from what I've observed, like how is the non-dual community showing up? I looked at the sand conference stuff last year and I went back to Jerry, like he knows, right? <laughs> I was like, again, guy. Yeah. question, <laughs> where are the black people? I mean, I'm like, I've never heard this. I've never heard this. Why isn't anybody telling anybody this stuff? And so now I feel like, okay, I'm in mama mode. I got to take your door down. Now that I'm here, you brought me here. You know, you brought me to this place. So now I feel like we need to be more open out there just telling everybody about yeah. it you know so there's a few threads in what you said i want to wrap up and care and elaborate and get your feedback on first of all to reiterate what you're saying about belief and change and non-change just to make sure i understand what you're saying and that the audience does i think you were saying that you know prior to this shift that you've undergone you're hanging on belief. Belief was your rock, but it wasn't actually a rock. It was just, it was a sort of an unstable, tenuous kind of thing because it had no foundation. And then with the shift, there was an actual element of permanence that was introduced into your life, something that actually is intrinsically permanent and stable. And then with that, you could kind of come back and deal with the changing stuff more effectively. I think, as you said, 
this diurnal thing. You know, they're sort of the dual and the non-dual together. There, there's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita which goes, established in yoga, perform action. And yoga means union. So established in a sort of established in being and permanence and stability on that found, yeah. on that foundation, perform action. And then it says yoga is skill in action, another verse, which means that your your action is going to be more skillful if you have this foundation. So yeah. I think that's what you're saying about that, right? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. It's exactly what I'm saying. I, I really feel like now I can do something. But where before belief just had me locked in this thing and I, I just couldn't couldn't get out of it. I'm re reminded of Christ referring to Peter as the rock, you know, on this foundation I will build my church. He, he was talking about a, some something kind of substantial and solid okay. that he saw in Peter, that Peter had yeah. apparently experienced or was experiencing. Yeah. And you know, diunitality, yeah. It's okay, a not too familiar with the word, but I guess I'll have to get used to it. Join Jerry's group, he'll, you know, you can, you can, you can learn a lot of stuff. Yeah, I don't have time to read groups too much. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I get the emails, I think, maybe. I glance at the titles. I think the non-dual world has, to a great extent, come around to this. I see it over and over and over again, where people start out, you know, with kind of the Tony Parsons orientation, of you are not a person and there's nothing to do and nowhere to go and all that stuff. And there's an emphasis on the transcendent, impersonal stuff. But then people begin to, but hey, what about my life? I've got all this stuff going on. How do I deal with that? Ch are my children illusory? Or do, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> You might like enjoy watching this talk that Adi Shanti and Francis Bennett gave together. I can send you a link to it. In fact, I have it on my website. But they're kind of addressing this at great length. And in a nutshell, the way Francis puts it, he says, of course you're a person. You're just not only a person. So you're, of course you're a wave. You're just also an ocean. So it's not like I am just the ocean, I am not a wave. And it's not yeah. like I am just a wave, I am not an ocean. You're both. And and mm -hmm. being both, there's a there's a tremendous sort of advantage to then trying to be over trying to be one or the other there is there is and in uh, growing up you know in, in the black community there's such a sense of lost identity because of this uh, double consciousness right we don't know if we belong here i mean do we belong there i mean how, how's that going i actually wrote to in the group that jerry has you know i was very very open and very honest because i felt like you know where race relations are in this nation, yeah. right, in, in the they, U.S.? They've got a long ways to go still. A very long, long way to go. So, like I said in my book, how I became free once I was honest. Like, the honesty was, like, the, the, the last resort I had. It was the, the last tool I had in the box. So, being honest about what's going on and not, you know, just poo-pooing it away or it happened a hundred years ago and, you know, all this other kind of stuff, because that, that, that stays with you. It stayed with me, you know, it stayed with me worshiping this white dude on a cross. I felt like every white person was like that, you know. Who, who wasn't I, actually that white. Did you see that thing I posted on your... I did see, yeah, I did see that's that. That's probably yeah, more what he looked like was... In, in all of my aunts and grandparents' homes, he looked like that. You know, yeah. he had the blonde hair and the blue eyes and all that stuff. Right. So I, I took that and I attributed that to everyone who looked like that. Yeah. You know, God loved them the most. And I was secondary, you know. So if they looked at me, touched me, talked to me, any wanted to be friends with me in school, you know, I felt real special. I really did. I, I feel like I needed to be honest about that. And we all need to be honest about what's happened. And then we can move on. 
you know, then we can move on from there. Yeah. Of course, there's this popular saying these days, black lives matter. And it's a little bit of a cliche, but, but really, obviously, all lives matter, you know. Uh, polar bear lives matter, white lives matter, tree lives matter. To my way of thinking, everything is God incarnate, every being, every, every form of life. And so if we, well, look what Christ said. He said, you know, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And least of these could mean any race, any animal, any per anything. So if, if we clear cut the rainforests, we're destroying our own lungs. You know, if we pollute the oceans, we're poisoning our own blood. If we, uh, you know, if we kill off species, we're lopping off our own fingers and toes. To me, the divine is imminent in, in all life and in, in all expressions, and uh, it all needs to be treated with reverence and respect. Mm -hmm. Right, that is true. And what I can say is, if you look at Maslow's, you know, the hierarchy of needs that he has there, you know, uh -huh. when looking at where I came from and the way we grew up and, you know, the, the struggles and, and, you know, things like that, I don't give a shit about rainforests and GMOs and all this other kind of stuff because I'm just trying to live. Right now, walk into the store, I'm trying to survive. So in your personal life, you're not at that point in Maslow's pyramid. You're sort of dealing with critical things. Right. Yeah. And, and I think a, a lot of us are dealing with that. And it's not until we can feel safe. Say that. It's not until we can feel safe, until I can be here with you, Rick, and know that I am completely safe, that I can engage you and have a good relationship with you and, move, and evolve so that we can do all that other stuff right. you know, with the rainforest and the food, you know, and all the, these other things. But if I don't feel safe with you, you can forget about that. You yeah. mean, I'm going to do, do what I need to do to survive. Hopefully you feel safe. You feel safe with me? I do. I feel very <laughs> safe with you. <laughs> I'm not too threatening. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I remember somebody was giving me a ride one time and I was telling them about how I used to hitchhike a lot as a teenager and, and all, and people used to pick me up and she said, well, uh, you, you probably never looked very sinister. <laughs> you know, this sort of boyish look about me. Right. <laughs> so in terms of like what, you, what got you crying a few minutes ago, this feeling of you know, a need to help your brothers and sisters you know, who are kind of in fear mode and have had that drummed into them for, for so long, what sort of inroads have you made so far with that? How do you see yourself playing that role? Yeah, no inroads at all, none. Well, how about when you went to that thing in Atlanta? Well, those are the black non-believers. Oh, so they're, that, they're already that's... kind of over that hurdle. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They've, uh, yes, uh, I believe uh, Mandisa Thomas is, is the head of the founder of that group. And I believe it started in 2009. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they've, they've kind of gotten over that hump a little bit. But what I say, uh, when I go out and I speak to people is that I'm not attacking beliefs. Keep your beliefs. Don't let them go. Hold on as tightly as you can. Whatever you believe when you came in the room, believe that exact same thing when you leave. All I'm saying is look at what you're believing. You know, that's it. Just look at what you believe because there's nothing I need to do. The same thing that allowed me to see what I saw is in everybody. Sure. You know, sure. I don't need to do anything about that. So I'm just asking if you feel inclined to do so, you know, you might want to look at, at what you're believing. And from there, just from the looking itself, from there, they'll figure it out. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll come to them. 
Well, you know what Thoreau said? He said something like, you can go ahead and build your castles in the air. That's where they belong. Just put foundations under them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that, um, I know that you're interviewing Robert Rabin yeah, next, I think right? next and, week, yeah. Yeah, and as I mentioned to you, uh, Robert's my public speaking coach. He's awesome. So one thing that he says in speaking is, look at what you're doing. Like, pay attention to how you're moving your hands, you know, your, your head, mm-hmm. how many times you're saying, um, <laughs> just pay attention, you know, just give attention to it because you cannot change what you don't give attention to. If I don't even know I'm doing it, you right. know, then how am I going to, you know, do something else? Right. Yeah. So it's all about looking and just paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And more fundamentally, it's about, you know, where you're at. You can be a polished public speaker and not really be living the message and it's not going to have the same effect as if you were somewhat green as a public speaker but actually really imbibing the message that you're trying to convey exactly and you know he he talks about being authentic that's his whole thing about being authentic and that's how can i not be myself the work comes in when i try not to be myself that's where all the effort comes but being myself that's just it just comes naturally so this whole thing about firing god I don't feel like you actually fired God. I feel like you fired his crazy uncle, you know, that, <laughs> that, that uh, you know, God is a bit embarrassed about <laughs> being associated with. I very much believe in God, but we could perhaps define, we could talk about what that means. And I have a feeling that maybe you do too, or maybe you will, and that you'll hire him again, but it won't be the same guy, you know, <laughs> and it won't even be a guy. You want to talk about that a little bit? Or you can even tell me what your orientation is to what I just said before we proceed. Yeah. So in the book, what I what I say is God was my system of beliefs, like the whole thing. And it wasn't just belief in Adam and Eve and all that stuff. It was belief in the fact that this is a computer, belief in the concept of a cup, of a tree, of air, you know, all that stuff that entire system was, was God, because there is no sun unless I believe there is one. There is no air unless I believe in air, which is what belief, you know, wants, you know, tends to do. You need this belief in order to have something. Uh, belief is about getting more, about more stuff. You know, religion is all about promising more stuff, mansions and milk and honey and 10 virgins and, you know, all this other kind 72. Is, is it 72? Well, Man. for the Muslims, anyway. Wow. Except they're all nuns and they're carrying rifles. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> they don't find that out until they go there. They don't, okay. Yeah, it was just a system of beliefs, right? So the system of beliefs is there, you know, it's still, but I, I'm not so invested. I don't value it and I don't use it to try to get me something, you know, because there's nothing more for me to get. Okay, so what you just said about you don't believe in, the sun doesn't exist unless you believe it in or something. Gotta help me out on this. I mean, there, were, there have been cultures who thought that the sun was a, a fiery chariot going across the sky and who kind of had no idea where it went at night or it went into some netherland or something and, and then you know, came out again in the daytime. And, and there are all sorts of mythological beliefs about astronomy and all kinds of other things. Obviously, even when people were believing those things, the sun and its motions, or, or the Earth's motion, were exactly the same as they are now. Now we just have a better understanding of it. And so we've kind of cast aside strange or mythological notions about astronomy, as a case in point. What I'm getting at is, 
seems to me that there is a reality to the laws of nature, to the way things work, which is not subservient to our understanding. It, it works the way it works, whether or not we understand it. Gravity did just fine before Sir Isaac Newton came along. It's doing, yeah. this, doing the same thing now. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not like nature hangs on our opinion or our right. understanding of it. It, it. it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like the example you used earlier about being at the restaurant and me believing one thing, you, I mean, it makes absolutely no difference at all. So that's what I see now, like with my system of beliefs, it really doesn't make a difference. And I don't have to imprison myself in those beliefs, thinking that there is no other way, there is no other option. You know, this is the way it, it has to be. Yeah. So I guess the point I'm making is that, that spirituality should be about arriving at truth, you know, arriving at reality. And, and beliefs are only useful in the service of that if they are kind of pointers or aids toward the actual experience of that truth or reality. We don't want to remain with them merely as beliefs for a lifetime without substantiating them through experience. Okay. Okay? Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe it's not okay. okay. Here's, here's something Carl Sagan he said. He said, how is it that hardly any major religion has looked at science and concluded, this is better than we thought? The universe is much bigger than our prophets said, grander, more subtle, more elegant. Instead, they say, no, 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 my God is a little God, and I want him to stay that way. A religion older new that stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be, might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe hardly tapped by conventional faiths. Possibly, yeah. But what I know is that when I was in the church, devout Christian, Whatever I believed, that was it. I mean, I, it couldn't get any bigger. It couldn't get any smaller. Because if it did, then that means I was wrong. I needed to be right. In my, more than anything in the world, I needed to be right. I will ignore what I needed to ignore. I will do all kinds of acrobatics as long as I can remain right. Which again, harkens back to a point we made in the beginning, which is that if religion is belief-based and not experiential-based, then there's all kinds of acrobatics, as you just said. You know how cats like to get into boxes and sit in them? I don't know if you've had any pet cats, but we used to have this cat that would be hilarious in, in trying to fit itself into a little tiny box. You know, it would have to be like a quarter of, it, of its size to actually fit into, but it would be trying this way and that. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of what I see religion doing in the sense that various evidence comes along and rather than expanding its perspective and saying, whoa, yeah, God is greater than we thought, it's more like, wait a minute, I have to shoehorn this into my little understanding. So, you know, the world was only created only 6,000 years ago and people used to ride around on dinosaurs and God put fish bones in the Himalayas to test our faith. It just gets crazy. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, it's not just that. It's like, at least for me, it was, it was where I came from. These were my roots. You're not going to mess up my roots. This is what they are. Okay. And you can't change that. So this whole, to me, the whole key about what you hope to do for the black community and for people who are caught in a, in a world of mere belief, the whole key to it is to get them to understand that what they so fervently believe in and have dedicated their lives to, it actually refers to an experience, you know, not just a belief that you, could, that you hang on to, but a living experience like you had in the office that day and that you are growing into more and more now. 
and that should be the orientation that you know I can actually experience what Jesus was talking about or whoever else and uh, you know and Jesus said many things which substantiate that he didn't just say believe me as far as I'm concerned if he said believe me it was just more like okay believe that this is possible and now I'm going to show you how to actually experience it not just believe but here's the first step this is a possibility for you now let's get on to experiencing it well, right now I'm not going that far. What I'm, <laughs> what I'm trying to do is right now, if if I I see someone with a hammer hammering their hand, I just want them to look at what they're doing because right now they're they're crying, they're complaining about the pain, something's going, you know, they're blaming other people, all this other kind of stuff. I'm saying just look at what you're doing, and once you realize what you're doing, then whatever happens happens. I'm just trying to get them to see, just just look, just see what you're doing. But you know, it's hard to take something away from somebody. If mm -hmm. you're kind of like living in a little hut, let's say, and you're attached to your hut, and someone tries to get you out of the hut, it could be a struggle. But if someone comes along and says, you see that beautiful house over there? I want you to move into that. All you have to do is leave your hut, but don't worry, keep your eye on the house. You know, you're gonna get into the house and it's gonna be, you'll forget all about the hut. It's gonna be much better. Then it's a lot easier to accomplish your aim than it is to just wrench them away from the hut. Right, right. And also what, what I saw was, as I mentioned before, my goal was not to fire God. I was not looking to not be a Christian anymore. That is not what I was looking for. I just wanted to be happy. I was miserable. You know, I wanted a good relationship. I wanted to be a good mom, you know, because I felt like I was ruining my kids' lives because I couldn't get my shit together. You know, I wanted my financial situation to be awesome, my job to be great. I just wanted to be happy. I saw it was possible. Other people were happy. Yeah. I wanted to be happy too, right? So what I saw was that, using the example I just used with the hammer on the hand, is me being happy first started with me stopping what I was doing. Stop hammering your hand, Cheryl. Okay, it starts there, which led me to all this other stuff. Just seeing what I was doing to myself, to myself, it led me to, to all this other stuff. And I think everybody wants that. You know, I think that's the most fundamental human desire is for happiness. And it's just that we, we look in all the wrong places for it. And basically we look outward and we never find it outwardly, which is not to say that we should totally stop looking outwardly because we you know, we want relationships, we want a comfortable place to live, we need money and all that stuff. But it, like you said a little while back, if it's not, if there's no foundation of sort of the inner experience, then the outer is just always going to be unstable. Yeah, exactly. So I have another little theme I want to introduce, but do you have anything on your mind that I haven't, that we've been skirting around that you haven't had a chance to elaborate on? No. Okay. Let's talk about God a little bit more. Do you believe in God now? No, I don't. Okay. You certainly don't believe in the crazy uncle. Oh, no. You dropped him. And so you don't believe that there's kind of anything anywhere on any level of reality that the word God might pertain to. Possibly, but I mean, I don't, I don't know. That's, that's really hard to answer. I know sometimes what I see is, I imagine like what's going on right now is happening within this vast universe. And it's just amazing. All, all I feel is amazement. You know, I, I think it's just, it's awesome. 
I remember one time I was in my kitchen frying some eggs for breakfast and I'm looking at the eggs and they're like shining or something. Like I was giddy. I felt like a child, you know, like, oh my God, these are eggs. Like where the hell did that come from? What is that? So it's kind of like that. Like, and I don't know if it's God or whatever. It's just so amazing. So amazing. Now think about what's actually going on with those eggs. We can start anywhere. We can start with the chicken, <laughs> which is a conglomeration of billions of cells, literally billions. I mean, we in our own body have 10,000 trillion cells. The chicken probably has quite a few trillion. And each of those trill cells, if you examine them microscopically, is about as complex as Tokyo. I mean, it, it has like, it's an incredibly complex mechanism. <clears throat> the DNA inside the nucleus of a cell is about six feet long, coiled up in each cell. And each of those DNA strands contains all the information necessary to make another chicken or another human being. You know, and then taking it down to the molecular level, there's all these little molecules buzzing around and to the atomic level, all this stuff going. And it's so obviously not a, just a chaotic, random, billiard ball kind of arrangement with things just sort of without any order or intelligence producing chickens or human beings or eggs. There's a vast intelligence completely permeating and orchestrating everything from the subatomic through the galactic and everywhere in between without a gap any place. Scientists generally acknowledge this, but they kind of stop short of saying what that intelligence might be. I mean, they, they define thousands of different laws of nature and identify so many different mechanisms of, you know, how amino acids work and how DNA works and all this stuff. Or if they do ask the question, they don't answer the question of how is all that happening? What's behind that? If that's the clock, then who's the clockmaker? So to me, the notion of God is that intelligence, which obviously permeates everything. It's not just sort of far removed off at a distance like a clockmaker might be. It's at the heart of every phenomenon in creation. Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, all those adjectives that are used to define God traditionally, but that are completely glossed over and misunderstood by, by traditional religions. But one, one can attune oneself to the experience of that level of nature's functioning, and then it begins to become very real and very vivid and very felt. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that sound like a bit of a rant, but I'm just saying that because, how was it, what, what did Einstein say? He said, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. And, you know, most of us just don't go through our days wrapped in awe, but we're actually looking at and participating in something that's incredibly profound and beautiful. And, yeah. you know, we just sort of take it for granted. Yeah. And I think uh, Einstein also said, the only thing that gets in the way of my learning is my education. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. It is just about going with the flow, evolving, changing. So to me, the whole thing I just said is actually relevant to the whole non-duality thing and the whole diurnal thing or whatever you call it, diunitive. <laughs> and, and it's even relevant to what you said about your life having had a, an orchestration to its, to its unfoldment that, mm -hmm. that seems to make sense in retrospect, as difficult as it may have been as you went through it. There's some kind of intelligence that, that governs the universe, not only on, on, in terms of mechanical things like I was just describing, but in terms of the, the course of our lives. You know, you say, 
you, you were talking earlier about God loving you or not loving you and whatnot. And what does that really mean, that God loves you or doesn't love you? Well, to me, it meant in the beginning, it just meant, you know, if my father loves me, he's going to give me stuff. I'm not going to suffer. You know, that, that's what it meant to me in the beginning. Now it just, it's, love is just everything. It's just whatever it is. No boundaries. So yeah. as a mother, if you, if you were scrubbing dirt from behind your kid's ear when he was three, four years old, you know, he probably thought, I hate this. Stop it. Mommy doesn't love me. Leave me alone. And I don't want this. So, you know, all the stuff we go through in life that's not quite the way we would have it be could be seen as scrubbing dirt from behind our ears. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like I said, with uh, my son, you know, when I when I took his door down and I said, you know, mommy's job, mommy's job is to know. That's it. I need to know. And, you know, I, I love you. So I, I know you. You know, mommy needs to know everything. So I'm talking too much. And, no. <laughs> and, and Irene says, mm hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting a little philosophical, but I just wanted to bring these themes into the conversation because, yeah. because I don't know if they're emphasized enough in the, in the so-called non-dual community. Mm -hmm. A lot of it kind of stops short of considering what I've just been saying. I think it's extremely relevant. And, you know, in some spiritual traditions, uh, an appreciation of God, uh, experiential, appreciation or cognition of God is said to follow eventually from self-realization. Mm -hmm. You know, that we get to know who we are, but then having come to know who we are, our ability to appreciate what's actually going on here begins okay. to become enhanced. And that appreciation grows to the point where we begin to desire to know and appreciate and cognize the, the, the intelligence behind all this or yeah. intrinsic to all this. Yeah. And as far as getting, you know, philosophical and, you know, explaining it in, in various ways, I have to admit, I was so lost. I mean, reading some of these books, I needed a PhD to get through some of this stuff, <laughs> which I don't have. You know? So that that was hard. That was hard too, trying to learn about it because I felt like I'm excluded again because I, I don't understand what this is saying to me. The language wasn't simple enough. So what I did and what I'm trying to do is like with my blogs, I don't know if you've looked at any of my blogs, but I take very, very common things mm -hmm. like the, the game words with friends. I have a blog about that and tying it into this scene, right? I have a blog about the Terminator where I'm talking about the movie, you know, mm -hmm. with Sarah Connor and all that. So I, I try to make it very readable and relatable. You know, yeah. I talk about orgasms and stuff like that and, and death and Things that people are just familiar with and make it try to make it as short as possible, which is one reason why my book is so short and you know to the point, because I see that there's another audience out there and they're looking, you know, they're tired too, they're just as exhausted as I was. But like I said before, don't know that there is another option, don't know that there's anywhere to go except to another belief, which is and all beliefs are the same. So you're just gonna keep putting those walls up, putting those walls up around yourself. So communicating this in, in a more uh, inclusive way is really helpful, I think. I think it is, and I think it's great. If we come back to the thing I was just saying about God being in everything, then and everything is in God, we can put it both ways, then God being that sort of all-pervading intelligence, then we are 
representatives of that. We are sense organs of the infinite, you could say. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're a sense organ, I'm a sense organ, Rupert Spira is a sense organ. Everybody expressing anything is doing it through their own capabilities, you know, through their own orientation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they're going to be people out there who resonate with this, that, or the other orientation. And one size does not fit all. Right, you're right. You're exactly right. So I'm the one black female of people. You've got a monopoly. <laughs> I do. You could cash in on this. Cornered over here on. <laughs> yeah, this is big. You should just, like, totally cash in before you get any competition. <laughs> you need an agent. <laughs> oh my God. Actually, you know, you do have some pretty big competition in Oprah. Oprah. Yeah, because she's been talking about this stuff for a long time. She's oh. really into spirituality. She meditates. She ha she's always doing things with Deepak. And, you know, she does her best to get this message out there. She hasn't, you, you, you may have seen her show Super Soul Sunday. Where she, yep. Yeah, she's interviewing Adyashanti and Byron Katie and all these different people. Yeah. So I think you missed the boat. Oh, did I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe I did. Maybe I did. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But um... so can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. So when I was first, you know, investigating this stuff, you are one of the folks who popped up in my Google search. Mm -hmm. But Buddha at the gas pump, that really threw me. You're like, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Buddha at the gas pump? What? What is that all about? Do you get it now? I think so. Is it just like Buddha being in an ordinary place or like Buddha at yeah. Walmart or exactly. something like Exactly. Yeah, that? it could be Buddha at Walmart. It could be Jesus at, uh, Jesus, Jesus at the Baskin Robbins or you know, oh. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I know one thing, though. Buddha at the DMV, if he comes to Virginia, he will lose his Buddhahood really quickly. It'll be Siddhartha at the DMV. <laughs> These people will take you there. But yeah, no, I get it. I, I do. I, I get it. I, I get yeah, it. Yeah, and I actually can't even take credit for that title. I, I was thinking of something much more trite and uh, boring as a title, but a, a young friend of mine in his 20s like spewed out about a dozen ideas, you know, just in a minute, and that was one of them. And everybody said, you know, all my friends said, yeah, that's what you should call it. So, so I did. It is catchy. It's like uh, Paul Hederman's Ben uh, Zen bitch slap. Right, thing. right, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, that's good. I, I like that. I've been wanting to ask you that for three years now. So yeah. Yeah, that's the deal. Um, <laughs> and uh, Irene didn't like it. She thought it was a dumb name, but it, oh think, yeah. <laughs> but mo most people kind of like it. Yeah. Is Irene there? She went out of the room, but she's around. Oh. She's coming and going. You can meet her later if you like. So let's see, I took some notes when I was reading your book. Let me just see if this gives us something that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, there's one section in your book where you, you have a chapter for each of the following. Sin, responsibility, belief, and perfection. Shall we uh, chat about each of those for a few minutes? Sure. When I first came into the realization, there were a lot of beliefs that were just, you know, they dug themselves in there, you know, and they were not just going to be let go. Right. Mm -hmm. And those were the ones that were more entrenched, I guess you can say. Sin is just the thing, <laughs> you know, sin is you're doing you're disobedient to God's word. Everything is a sin. Every single day I was a Christian. I went to bed at night when I said my prayer, please forgive me for any sin that I've committed, because, you know, if I died that night, I wanted to go to heaven. Mm -hmm. 
And I wanted to be, you know, fresh, freshly forgiven, you know, before I went to bed. So sin was a huge, huge thing. Just entertaining the idea that it's not what I thought it was, was hard. That sin was not what you thought it was. Yeah, that, that sin is not, you know, maybe it's something that just happens naturally. It's like a reflex or something. Maybe it's just a natural thing that, that happens in nature, you know? It's not something that I do and have control over. Like I can sin or I can't sin. Maybe it's something else. And in all these chapters, it's more like a, you know, possibly, could it be something, something else, you know? Yeah. And with responsibility, I was never, never responsible for anything. Either God did it or Satan did it. Uh, before you buzz through all of them, uh, let's take them mm -hmm. one at a time. So, I mean, I think we can safely assume that whatever religion understands sin or responsibility or any of these things to be is probably not what was originally intended by the use yeah. of the term and not actually what you know, the founder of the religion was referring to. And so the mm -hmm. sin thing comes from that, what is that, that term that means to miss the mark? Yeah. I think it's an archery term and it means you've missed the mark. And mm -hmm. so... I guess the question is, there's the whole philosophy of karma, you know, that Eastern religions hold, and even Western. I mean, as you sow, so shall you reap. Isn't that in the Bible someplace? It raises the question, are there consequences to our actions? Do we have free will? Do we have control over or any willpower to do things this way as opposed to that way? And if we do things in such a way that it's going, they're going to harm people or cause suffering to people or you know retard their their spiritual progress or something does that matter is that any different than if we do things that help them and make them happy and so on so missing the mark i i do mention that in the book and also i have a chapter that's called making what's missing because there is no mark the mark is a belief like whatever the belief is, and we know that that's not true that's something made up so there really is no mark to miss and that's on this side. Now, back on this side, and we're back into like the diunital thing again. Right. We have created these marks. They're here. <laughs> you know, they're right here. And they are possible. It's possible to miss them. But it's from seeing that at the place where there are no marks, where I can now move on to make change in the world in whatever way I, I, I think change needs to be made. But it can only happen effectively from what I see from seeing that change is not necessary. That makes sense? It does make sense. My former teacher always used to say that one can only act from one's level of consciousness, whatever that may be. Okay. And if the level of consciousness is not very developed, then inevitably one is going to behave in certain ways that create suffering for oneself and others. Yeah. And if the level of consciousness is higher, then spon again, spontaneously, uh, without a whole lot of browbeating and effort, one is mm -hmm. going to behave in such a way as to help people flourish, to spread, to have a, an evolutionary beneficial influence on others. Yeah, so exactly. I think that's, that's kind of what you're saying said. there. That yeah. you, it, really, it is. It depends on where you're coming from, and you, your first priority, be, priority should be to be in the right place from mm -hmm. which to act. Right, exactly. And I love how you say it happens spontaneously, like with no effort. So I don't have to try to be nice to you or kind to you. You know, that's just the way it's the way it's playing the, out. The yeah. way you roll naturally. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. And I mean, let's say it's not your natural inclination to be nice or kind and you're straining to be nice and kind because you want to be a good Christian and all, <laughs> you know, then what happens when you get home or something? You, there's this pent up frustration or something and you'll lash out because you've been mm -hmm. straining. 
Exactly. Right. I have a, a friend who is such a liar. I mean, they just <laughs> lie all the time. Not just that, but they tell everything. I mean, you know, I can't, I can't say a thing without it getting back to somebody else, right? Yeah. So trying to not be that way is hard for this person because that's not what they do. That's not how they roll. But I know this about them. They're very honest about it. So I've actually... They're honest that uh, they're a liar. Oh, yeah. How do you and, know and, they're and, telling and, the truth and, about so, that? And, <laughs> exactly. But, <laughs> but also that they cannot keep a secret. You know? see, so right. there's, there's no way I can say, I'm going to tell you this, but please don't tell anybody else. You right. can forget about that, right? <laughs> but because I know that and there's honesty there, I can go to this person and say, if I, want so, if I don't want to say something to someone, but I want them to know it, ah, you just tell I can them. go to this person. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so... She's useful. <laughs> she's very, very, because she's being who she is. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So being who you are is all that's necessary. That's it. Just being exactly who you are and you fit in exactly where you're supposed to fit in and things work the way they need to work. And I would say that, speaking hypothetically, I don't know this person, but in general, in the course of one's evolution as a soul, and I do believe souls evolve as we go along, this person isn't always going to be a liar. That's a character flaw of some sort that one way or another will eventually be worked out. And she may, if this is a woman, she may encounter some slaps here and there as God or nature tries to correct that tendency in her. Possibly. I'm glad you said that because okay. when I went to Black Nonbelievers this mm -hmm. past weekend, there was a, a lady there who, um, who had a disability. And what she said was, it was very interesting because I'd never heard this before, is that she talks and uh, possibly writes about disabilities in the Bible and how every time you see someone with a disability, it's because they've been infected with a demon or right. something or it needs to be cast out. Mm -hmm. Like being disabled is wrong. When what she says is that is totally not true. Being disabled is perfectly fine. You know, we've just labeled it disability, mm -hmm. you know, like they're, like they're lacking something. But disabled people, they're not lacking a damn thing. They're really not. And to see that, like to really see that is, is hard when you feel like if somebody can't see, then they need operations so they can see. If they can't hear, they need those cochlear things or whatever mm -hmm. to be just like everybody else. So that, that's something very interesting to me that I'm really interested in finding out, finding out more about. I don't know if I totally agree with that. I mean, if I were deaf and some operation could restore my hearing, I'd want to get it. Possibly. You know, if I break my leg, I want to have it set properly so I'm not, you know, limping for the rest of my life. The bone can be set in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So don't we do our best to, to sort of overcome handicaps if we can? And then what's that alcoholics pledge? You know, the, the ability to change the things you can change, not worry about the things you can't change and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, but my, my question is, though, like for individuals who are born with certain things, you know, is it a handicap? I'm calling it a handicap because I'm comparing it to me and saying I can do this and you can't. So you're handicapped in some kind of way. So my question is just, is that really what that is? Is it a handicap for real? I mean, we're all handicapped. <laughs> in, in compared to somebody else well, yeah. who has greater abilities in this or the other, this, that or the other way than we do, we're all handicapped. So we are who we are and we're just kind of going along doing the best we can. Yep. And again, we're evolving. I really think that. I mean, there's some kind of paths or, or traditions that dismiss that notion. They just say, I, well, 
you know, you're enlightened or you're not, and, and you just, you are what you are, and, and so on. But as I see it, there's a, there's a sort of an evolutionary tendency in the whole universe, and, and all, yeah. all beings are kind of not only, not only evolving biologically through various species, perhaps, but evolving as souls into greater and fuller expressions of, mm -hmm. of the divine. Yep. You can tell that I kind of interject a lot of my own <laughs> philosophies and opinions into these interviews. It's, it's but that's fine. Yeah, yeah, some people hate it. Some people like it. It is what it is because I, you know, I can't help it because I'm just me. <laughs> like you, like you're just saying. Yeah, yeah it's, it's your my hand handicap. It's your handicap. <laughs> <laughs> You'll evolve from that. Yeah. Trick, so just give it time. <laughs> the devil made me do it. <laughs> so what about responsibility? So responsibility, that's um, about, like I was saying, I, I, as a Christian, a believer, I am not responsible for anything. It's either God or the devil. Mm. You know, God did something good or the devil did something bad or God allowed the devil to do something so that I would fall into this hole to teach me a lesson. Or the, I mean, there is no responsibility at all ever for that, anything. That's the way you used to see it. Oh, yes. But then how could you feel so guilty and, and stuff if, if you weren't responsible? I don't know. The guilt was just, the guilt was there before I could walk almost. I mean, the guilt was just, was just there. It was just constantly there. There was no reason for the guilt. It was just there. I guess the fact that God and the devil and my enemies were, were there around me, I could try to get rid of it by blaming them or, or something like that. Like I shouldn't feel bad about this because it's for whatever. But yeah, I don't know where that guilt came from. I really don't. And that's a good question because responsibility, I didn't want to be responsible for anything. You know, I wanted to be blameless, Yeah. you know, for, for anything. So with this seeing, that was really hard to let go of because that the b belief is like a buffer, mm -hmm. you know, it, it really is like a buffer. And with that buffer gone, man, everything is just raw and there. And uh, that hurts. It hurts. It hurts to feel pain and not be able to just give it to somebody. Mm. Like all this stuff that was happening when I was going through my divorce, all of the feelings I was having, man, it was so hard to not just give that to him and say, this, it's your fault. You know, this is why I feel this way. To give it to Jesus or to your... No, to my husband. To your ex-husband. Okay. Yes. <laughs> in other words, you had to take responsibility for it. I had to. I had to. I had to hold that pain close to me and just be with it. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. I mean, that it was tough. It, was, it got easier, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it did get a lot easier. But um, but it's hard to do. You know, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want it. I don't want. It. So, is your orientation to life now that you pretty much take responsibility for what everything in your life and everything that happens to you? I take, let me see, I take responsibility while I see what's, what's going on in life. So it's not like I say something happens, like you hit me with your car. Right, whip that shit. Like that something. was, you know, don't worry about it, Rick. No, you're going to pay for my car. <laughs> but I see that, you know, if I feel some kind of way about that, if I'm angry at you and all this other kind, then I'm doing that. All you did was hit my car. That's the end of the story. 
you know, and all that other stuff is going to happen. But anything that causes me to suffer for that, if two weeks later, I'm still thinking about it, you know, well, you should have paid me more for that, or he didn't have to do anything, or, you know, why was he, that's on me. You don't have anything to do with that. My car, that was it, done. Yeah, it, so in it, other words, you don't spin big stories out of No, things. I mean, it's too time consuming. I got other things I need to do. Yeah. yeah. I was driving along with a friend a couple of weeks ago and, and on the highway and some car pulled out right in front of us and I hit the brakes and didn't hit him and my friend was like, oh, okay, love, forgiveness, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and we, we drove along for a little while and I said, you know what my reaction to that car was? And I, I, I wasn't saying this to brag, it was just, it was my reaction. I, was, I said, well, hit the brakes, keep driving. You know, there's a Zen story where uh, two Zen monks are walking along, an older monk and a younger monk and they come to a stream and there's this pretty young girl standing at the stream and she can't get across so the older monk picks up the pretty young girl and and carries her across the stream and puts her down so she can be on her way and they they keep walking and a couple hours goes by and the the, the young monk has been very silent and finally says i can't stand it anymore i just have to say this to you you know we're monks we're not supposed to touch women why did you pick up that girl and carry her across the stream and the and the older monk says oh are you still carrying her? I put her down a few hours ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. You know, whatever I'm still carrying, that's on me, you know, and I can't blame that on anybody. Good. All right. So that's responsibility. Mm -hmm. Belief. We've already talked a lot about belief. Yeah, we talked a lot about yeah. belief. How about perfection? Perfection. So... The Bible says, what does it say? Be therefore perfect. Yeah, as your Father in heaven is, is perfect. perfect. So yeah. let me speak for myself. Mm -hmm. I saw that. I was taught to see that as a, a race to the finish line. Mm -hmm. I'm not perfect yet. Oh, I'm hitting the mic. But I'm going to get there. <laughs> right. You know, so I got to do all this stuff to get to perfection. So I'm proposing maybe this could just simply mean you're already that be ye perfect you are perfect because i am you know mm -hmm. i'm your father you know we're the same we got this thing going here i'm perfect and you are already that you're already at the finish line so anything you're doing has nothing to do with the finish line because you're already there and you would apply that universally yes so that guy in the in lafayette louisiana who shot up some people in a movie theater the other night he's perfect he he doesn't have to go to the finish. He's already at the finish line. Now, all that other stuff he's doing has nothing to do with who he is. Okay, It may have something to do with what he sees, like what he understands, how he's seeing himself. But that's got nothing to do with the reality of who he is. Let me give you my spin on this. That has nothing to do with the reality of who he is, like you just said. And ultimately, we are and all this is that reality. What else can it be? There's a verse in the Gita that says, the, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. Mm -hmm. uh, the final truth is, about them both has been known by the seers of ultimate reality or something like that. And that last bit is relevant, the seers of ultimate reality. Just because there's an ultimate reality to things and that's what we always are and have been and will be eternally that, doesn't mean we see it. So to me, the notion of be therefore perfect is, is really an injunction to see the level of perfection in a deep cognitive experiential way to, to know it experientially uh, because the vast majority of people are estranged from that 
if we kind of want, want to just draw a diagram, that reality is down here at the foundation of things, and they're just kind of floating around on the waves without any contact with that. And so the, the recommendation in that verse is to actually make contact with that, to merge with that, to become that, to consciously know yourself as that, and yeah. then, then you'll be living perfection, not just philosophizing about it. Mm -hmm. We've had several discussions in uh, one of my groups <laughs> about uh, veganism, mm -hmm. and they're very interesting. And I, I, I'm not a vegan, but I joined a, a vegan group just because I want to see, like, I, I really want to see perspectives yeah. that are in contravention to mine. Kind, you know. So I'm in Christian groups. I mean, all this stuff because I'm just looking at the conversations and just following them, seeing how these, yeah. how they change, I think that's right? a really cool trait about you, that you, you just want to expose yourself to yeah. other perspectives. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. I absolutely do. So, so, so there's, you know, lot, lots of discussion about, around that. Folks are, some folks are really passionate about it. Some are passionate on, on the other side. Mm -hmm. And what I see there is that kindness is a big thing, you know, being kind, not just to animals, but to, you know, all, all of life, you know, just mm -hmm. being kind. What I see is that I feel like the being kind is already taken care of. It's more about seeing kind. My vision is obscured, right? So I'm not seeing what's there. I'm really not seeing what's there. So it's working on that. And I can only see kindness from, as I said before, from this realization, you know, because that, that's really what takes the, the veils off my eyes. And the more that I can see kind, okay, then the being kind, which is already, I, I, which is already there, I feel, just is able to be more exposed, I guess, you know. Yeah. So the more I can see it, the more it can, the more it can be. Does that make any sense at all? It makes total sense. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. It's it's like we were saying earlier. You can only act from your level of consciousness. Yeah. And, so if you're in sort of kindness consciousness, so to speak, then your actions will flow spontaneously from that. Yeah. There's some wiggle room in that. You know, I know people who are very kind and ethical and enlightened who still eat meat and stuff. And that really freaks some people out. And they, they think, well, how can they do that? They're not walking their talk. And I don't know. I can't really speak to that. Uh, but I try not to judge it. And, and hey, I ate chicken and fish once after decades of vegetarianism, um, mm -hmm. and I get flack for that from people. <laughs> As I mentioned it before, and people say, "Well, you're not really there yet, Rick." <laughs> um, you're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like you have to sort of you can intellectualize and talk and discuss yeah. about all this stuff, and at a certain point, you you just have to give people some latitude and and not not judge them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, gotta go yeah. Besides which, I mean, there, it's, this is a bit of a tangent, but there are people, health advocates and so on, who say that, you know, if, if in your whole life, and also generationally going back for hundreds of years, there has been meat consumption, it could be really bad for your health to just quit cold turkey and, and try to adopt a completely different diet for which you're not naturally constituted. Yeah, good thing. All right, well, we talked about perfection. <laughs> a few more little tidbits here. For one to be delivered, all must be delivered because we're all God's one son. I'm taking these little things from your book that jumped out at me. Talk about that. I hated that. I mean, that, that was a huge hump. Because you got yeah. kicked out of the exclusive club. Yes. 
Yes. And like I said in the beginning, yes, I was special and favorite and all that stuff. But that was made even sweeter because I had enemies who were going to burn in hell forever. Right. You know, and I loved that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's a documentary called Waiting for Armageddon. And I posted this once uh, in my group, but I watched that documentary like eight times, no lie, like eight times I watched it because the way they talk about it, you know, there's going to be blood as high as a horse's bridle, you know, whatever, whatever the the Bible says about that, you know, God's going to come back and destroy it. And this is how he's going to do it. And the ground is going to be soaked in blood. I mean, blood was mentioned like a thousand times in this thing. And it was mentioned with such glee. One guy was like, you know, it's going to be so exciting to see, you know, I, oh, not that I want to see, you know, but, you know, I I really want to see this happen because the prophecy will be coming, you know, will be fulfilled because I will be right. I'll be right. It's so fascinating to me because I I used to think that way too. Mm. Like it was very comforting, extremely comforting to believe that God was going to kick somebody's ass for me. You know? <laughs> and I would say so, you know, God is going to get you. You don't mess with a child of God. That's what we say. You don't do that. Like the don't mess with Texas type thing. Right. You know, really don't mess with a child of God because he's going to get you. And now that I'm saying what I'm saying in the Christian community, what I'm hearing is, Cheryl, you better be careful. You know, you better be really careful about what you're doing and what you're saying because, you know, God's not going to tolerate that. Yeah. He's not going to go for you telling people, you know, what you're telling them. So, you know, watch out for your kids, watch out for yourself. So it's all this, you know, if you're not on the side of the goodies, you know, if you're on the side of the baddies, I'm sorry for you, but, you know, you had it coming and I'm glad to see it anyway, because I'm right. Yeah, it's just all ego aggrandizement, as far as I can see. Trying to compensate for one's felt sense of inadequacy by making oneself feel special and and making others feel less special helps even more you know it's not enough to just feel special oneself but you feel even extra special if the other people are all going to hell exactly right (laughs) so letting go of that like seeing that that is that my enemies will not be punished forever in a lake of fire and all this other kind of stuff i was very upset i was extremely upset about that oh you're not upset anymore though right no i'm not upset it's like let them live (laughs) (laughs) but that was hard to get over i mean it really really was well i mean you had a lot of things that were deeply ingrained we all do you know but you you, you've really had you really had that stuff drummed into you for a long time a long time and uh you know you don't this is probably one useful point here which is that our conditioning doesn't just go in a flash if it ever does for anybody it must be very rare it's like layer after layer after layer after layer and it all has to be sort of examined and rooted out and there was a lot of fear in there and i'm not talking about i'm talking about real like stuff i felt in my body fear for no reason like i'm sitting somewhere on a sunny beautiful day and just like what happened in you know on, on my job just terror you know when i think about something like you know people aren't going to hell or whatever just just simple thoughts like that. That would, would stir up fear? Yeah, it would stir up horrible, horrible fear. What comes to mind when you say that is that each time you felt or feel a wave of fear like that, it's a signal that some nice purging has just taken place or is about to. It's like the smoke as something burns off, just mm-hmm. in, in, giving you a, a signal that the thing is being burned. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe that's what it is. I remember that I, I emailed Rupert to ask about that because in, in the sot songs that I've been listening to, I really hadn't heard that a lot. It was all about, you know, beauty and bliss and light and all this other kind of stuff. Nobody's talking about how they wanted to piss their pants throughout this process, you know? <laughs> so I was like, what's up with that? And I don't, he responded, I don't remember what he said, but I did hear after that one lady mentioned something about that, in, in one of the, and, which I was happy to hear. Because it was good to hear that someone else, you know, yeah. was going through that too. Well, you remember what Yoda said to Luke Skywalker, right? What? what well, well, Luke said, "I'm not afraid," and Yoda said, "You will be." <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what Rupert said in his in his email. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a nice line you said: "I can love my neighbor as myself because my neighbor is myself. We are not separate." Okay. I think that's the key to loving your neighbor as yourself, by the way. And one thing that I said in, uh, in this group, this diunital group yesterday was, and I use, I use the interviews that I've done as, as an example. I've done interviews with white folks and black folks. Mm -hmm. And because of what I believed and the way I grew up and things like that, I really felt that in those interviews with the white interviewers, I had to be somebody else. My voice had to be different. I really paid a lot more attention to what I said and how I said it. You know, I, I was a lot more cognizant of what was going on because I was trying, I wanted to be like my interviewer. I want to be like them. But when I'm with someone who's black, I feel like I can just be me. I don't have to be like you. And what I said was because the question I asked in that group was, do you have enough? Because Jerry and Greg Good, he's in this group too. So it's two white dudes talking about diunital consciousness, which is something that comes from black studies in that community, which was kind of weird to me. I'm like, and all the commentary, all the decisions, I mean, all that stuff is coming from these guys. But I, I'm, a, I'm an admin on this group too. So my question was, you know, don't y'all have enough? You know, really, don't you have enough? I mean, because I feel like, the reason why I do that, and probably, you know, other black people is that... Obama was criticized for that. I mean, you know, when yeah. he was campaigning, he would be speaking to black groups and he'd sort of take on a different way of speaking, you know, to the brothers. And then when he was speaking to white groups, he speaking. So he was criticized. For it. So maybe it's a natural thing that we just... Well, what I said was diunital, like this, the, the diunital consciousness, you know, the, the am I this or am I that type thing is about survival. So if I feel like I can take on your mannerisms, mm -hmm. if I can be like you, then there's nothing for you to take from me, okay? Because I'm like you, we, we got the same stuff. And when I'm with someone who is like me, I feel more comfortable because they're not gonna take any, I can still leave that conversation whole. Yeah. Going back to, you know, all the, the stuff that's happened with slavery and, and the, the, the Native Americans and all that stuff. So in, in that conversation, it was, it was about seeing that and acknowledging that, that this is, what I'm, this is what I'm doing, like right now, this is what I'm doing. And now that I see what I'm doing, I can pay more attention to it and, and see what that's all about. So in this interview, do you feel like you've conducted yourself differently than if I were a black man interviewing you? I don't know. I feel comfortable with you, Rick. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't feel like I'm being anything other than, than who I am. You don't seem to be, as far as I can yep. tell. <laughs> I've, I've listened to a bunch of your interviews. I listened to one where a black woman was interviewing you on some internet radio show, and she kept calling Did you. Did I sound different in that one? She did. Not so much you. You sounded kind of 
like you sound now, but she kept yeah. calling you my sister and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't said that once. I haven't said that. You know, well, I would be phony if I were to talk that way because I don't talk that way. <laughs> yeah. It'd be yeah. like I would be sort of reversing the roles and doing the same thing you just described. Yeah, yeah, maybe. You know. But that goes back to me feeling safe, right? Yeah. I cannot have a relationship with you if I don't feel safe with you. And we can't evolve together unless that back to the hierarchy of needs, unless that safety is there. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, let me read a paragraph here that was towards the very end of your book, and we'll see if there's any commentary on that on this. And if if there's not, maybe this is a good point on which to wrap it up, but we'll, we'll be able to make some wrap-up comments, too. He said, the thing I hated, despised, and wanted to punish was not my enemy. It was my judgment of myself as separate. As a Christian, I forgive others and know that I am simultaneously forgiving myself because there are no others. Ultimately, it's seen that there is nothing to forgive, and this is true forgiveness. I'll comment with a story that, that I read. This story where this little girl... She did not know her dad. She was born and he left and he went and he had another family and more children, you know, things like that. The, the mother was, was a little disturbed by that, but you know, she was always honest with the little girl to let her know, you know, this is your father. Um, he's not here right now. He's there, he has another family. You know, he'd come to visit her every now and then. So one day the little girl, she goes to her father's house and meets the family. You know, the he's a good father, the, the kids love him. You know, uh, everything is going well. So when the mom picks her up, she asks the little girl, well, how did it go? And she said, well, mom, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see that, you know, that he's a really great dad, you know, and, and they really love him. You know, the little girl had no animosity or anything like that. You know, she was just very happy to see that her dad was finally able to be a dad the, the way he should have been. So when it comes to seeing that there's nothing to forgive. You know, you are being exactly who you are right now. How can I condemn you for that, for being exactly who you are? There's nothing to forgive you for. You haven't done anything. You haven't affronted me in any kind of way by being exactly who you are. Doesn't it say something in the Bible about you are already forgiven or something? There's this kind of like, as if sort of a constant flow of forgiveness. <clears throat> Was, I don't know whether that was Jesus or where, what reference that came from, but it's sort of like if you're actually in that state, you spontaneously forgive everyone. You know, well, on the cross, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They knew not what they did because they knew not what they were or are. And he saw that and forgave them even in the act of crucifying him and undoubtedly forgave everyone else throughout his life who were doing much less heinous things to him or to, right. one, to one another. Right. And I see that forgiveness, like forgiveness happens before. Forgiveness is what allows all this stuff to occur in the first place, is what I see. So I don't have to forgive you. It's already been done, you know, which is why I can even be here with you now. It's because of forgiveness. That's nice. Good. Well, that's a good theme to end on, I suppose. So you live in D.C., you work for the government. That's just about mm -hmm. everyone who in D.C. does. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Or a contractor. It's one or the other. A contractor yeah. for the government, yeah. Um, and you would kind of like to do more public speaking. So if people are hearing this interview, wherever they may be, and would like you to speak, they can get in touch with you through their website, through your website. Through my website. Mm -hmm. Which I'll be linking to. And it's just CherylAbram.com, right? 
Yep, charlabram.com. Yep, so, and I'll be linking to it. And you'd be happy to fly around and, and talk here and there. Oh, more than happy, yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah, maybe you could come to, this, to the Science and Non-Duality Conference sometime. I think you'd, you'd find it fun and you'd have a good time sort of meeting Rupert and all these people in person. And yeah, yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. you could speak at it. Probably not this year because they've already, and I'm not taking more speakers, but next year you could do that. Is there anything else you'd like to sort of tell people about? Do you sort of have individual Skype chats with people or anything like that? I don't uh, have a heck of a lot of time, but. You no, know, yeah, um, I, I haven't done that uh, in the past. And, you know, I work full time. I have four kids. So. Yeah, you're busy. Well, you know, I, I could squeeze one or two people in. <laughs> yeah, if they want to email you about something. You... Yeah, like in the evenings after the kids go to bed or something. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, thanks. Really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I did too. I really did. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so I knew it would go well because you're just so articulate and clear and the, the, the things I've seen online. And it's, it's really cool that you just have a kind of a voracious appetite understanding this stuff better and exposing yourself to new perspectives and all. I think that will serve you well throughout your life. It's always so good to kind of enrich one's frame of reference, to enrich oneself by, you know, looking at things in fresh ways. That, mm -hmm. uh, I remember speaking of Obama again, I remember him, someone asked him whether he watched some particular news show or something. He said, no, I don't watch that because I'm not, I'm not going to learn anything new on that. I always want to spend my time doing something that's going to teach me something new. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always loved school, loved learning new things. And I'm on the path that I really want it to be on in, in terms of I love speaking and I love writing. I love doing all that stuff. But I knew I was going to write a book. I just thought it was going to be like a erotic romance novel. <laughs> Maybe you'll get to that one. Totally. No, <laughs> this is not erotic at all. Well, it could be. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, this is really great. I mean, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, life is fun, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so uh, let me make some conc general concluding remarks. I've been speaking with Cheryl Abram, interview number 300 in the series, Buddha at the Gas Pump. So if this is new to you, you haven't seen any others, you can go to batgap.com and you'll see under the past interviews menu, you'll see them archived and categorized in about five different ways. Under the future interviews menu, you'll see what's upcoming. There's a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted, if you'd like to be notified. We finally got the podcast fixed. I've been saying for months that the podcast is broken. It's finally <laughs> fixed. So if you'd like to sign up for the audio podcast, you should be able to do that successfully. And there's a page for that and a link under every interview. And there's the donate button. I didn't mention that in the beginning, but I wouldn't be able to do this as anywhere near as much as I'm doing it if people hadn't been donating all these years. So if you really appreciate the show and feel like helping to support it, any donation, large or small, one time or ongoing is appreciated. And the, the, there are both those options there on the button. So thanks for listening or watching and we'll see you next week. As Cheryl mentioned, Robert Rabin is, is my guest for next week. And now I'm going to spend the next week plunging in and learning all about Robert Rabin because I don't know yeah. much about him yet. <laughs> he's amazing. He's hot too. So that'd be great. You mean hot in the sense of good looking? Yes. Oh, well, Adam, that'll appeal to me too much. But... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, to each his own, you know. <laughs> uh, all right, well, thanks, Cheryl. Okay, thank you, Rick. I, I really enjoyed it. I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. bye.